0: Hi,
1: I'm Adam Sobel and this is Deep Convection. My guest today on the podcast for the second time is the great Mark Kane. I gave an introduction about Mark last time, so I'll keep it short here. Mark Kane is one of the world's great climate scientists. He and Steve Zebiak invented El Niño prediction and thus seasonal climate forecasting. He's made many, many other important contributions to climate science, educated many students who have become leaders in the field themselves including several we've had or will have as guests on this podcast, namely Richard Seeger and Jeff Shaman so far, and Amy Clement to come soon. And Mark has been a mentor to many more in our field, including me. So that said, a few words now about what's in this episode and why. The plan was originally to do one interview with Mark. We did that about a year ago. We talked for about three hours and only got up to when Mark got his PhD at about age 30. That's the episode we released most recently, a couple of weeks ago. So we had to schedule another one to get to the rest of Mark's life and career and to talk about climate change and other topics I wanted to get to with him. That second conversation went just great, but then a catastrophe occurred. I had a technical failure and lost a large fraction of the recording. i just started doing these interviews and I was getting used to the technology still, and I was devastated. But Mark, being the kind and generous soul that he is, was very understanding and agreed to do yet a third interview to try to cover again some of the topics from the second that we had lost. So this episode is made of parts of both of those second and third interviews. Our fantastic editor and engineer at Duotone, Dana Hamm and Chrissy Lassiter, have done wonders to stitch them together, turning more than three hours of material into an hour and a half episode that makes sense. We've tried to compromise, though, between the smoothness of the editing and capturing some of the key historical facts of Mark's career, so you will hear some of the edits as a little bit discontinuous, but bear with us and the conversation will make sense, I promise. In this episode, you'll hear about the discovery that made in Mark's career when he and his student at the time, Steve Zibiak, developed the first dynamical model that could both simulate and predict El Nino events, then how they ventured to make an actual real-time prediction of the 1985-86 event and then publicize it with a paper in a press conference, a bold and risky move, but one that paid off. We talked not just about Mark's successes, though, but also his setbacks. In particular, how just before that big El Nino success, Mark left MIT after being told he wouldn't get tenure as a young faculty member. That was a massive error, by any account, on MIT's part, and no doubt a difficult experience for Mark, and one I'd never talked about with him before. So I really appreciate that he was willing to get into that. We also talk about Mark's first foray into climate impacts, when he realized he could predict maize yields in Zimbabwe, and then we get into global warming and climate politics, starting from Mark's recollections of Jim Hansen's history-making congressional hearing in 1988, where Hansen made a prediction that was in some ways reminiscent of the one Mark had made about El Nino just a couple of years before. There's a lot we don't talk about, or that we've edited out in the interest of keeping this to a reasonable length. In particular, we leave out Mark's early papers with Ed Saracik, done just after Mark's PhD when he was a researcher at NASA GIS and before he went back to MIT as a faculty member. Those papers on the theory of equatorial waves in the ocean were critical precursors to Mark's El Nino work, but we'll have an episode with Ed Saracek soon, so you'll hear about it there from Ed. We also left out most of the details of Mark's scientific career from about the mid-1990s onward, but again, we've done episodes with several of Mark's students from that time who were involved in much of that work, so we're covering some of the science at least from that period in those episodes. Anyway, I'm so happy to have been able to put out two episodes with Mark Kane, they were great conversations, three of them, although two episodes. And I also think they're important historical documents for our field. So I hope you enjoy this one. Here's me and Mark Kane. So Mark, what do you think? Are we doing beer again? Beer again, yes. Okay. So I give me a minute. Brought
2: you some. Well, no, if, no, no, no. No. if we go to round three, it'll be my turn.
1: <laughs> so where we were last time, we were in the middle of you doing your PhD, or maybe mm-hmm. we were near the end of it. But going back a little bit, I wanted to see whether you thought, look, looking back at that time or even before that, whether you're getting into this particular field of research, um, which I guess starts with your GISS internships in the summer, had any connection in your mind with your um, your social consciousness. I mean, if you think of the civil no. rights work, it was irrelevant. So it was just an interesting p- actually, field of Actually, in
2: a way, um, in a way, part of its attraction was it didn't seem, um, it, didn't, it felt like what it was doing wasn't all that useful, uh, societally useful, and it seemed like a relief at the time. Um, I it just shows you what you don't know, <laughs> what you can't anticipate. Um, but really it just seemed like uh, in particular what I was doing I came in this as a sort of applied mathematician and then I got into oceanography where at the time there was almost no data so um, it had a very abstract kind of quality to it It didn't seem that useful and in fact um, you know it's still uh, there's still a lot of ocean problems you can work on that are interesting, but don't seem like they're, you know, near the surface, especially now that things are uh, uh, seem urgent in climate science. So, uh, you know, but the answer is absolutely no. It's almost the opposite.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's consistent with most of us um, to some extent. And my, I've asked this to a few people uh, significantly younger than you and even younger than me. And uh, I have the impression that although the very latest generations may be different, that for most of us, the notion that it might be useful was at most sort of a vague idea that helped us choose between different areas of science that, you know, in terms of technically were rather similar. as so we think, okay, I'll pick the one that's Maybe a little relevant, but we weren't doing it out of political consciousness. But given that your political consciousness was as strong as it was, I just wanted to see whether there yeah. was any anything to that.
2: No, it's definitely a it's a fair question, and um,
1: yeah, uh, you answered it. It's fine.
2: Yeah, and uh, okay.
1: So, so where we were last time, you were you had, uh, you know, Philander had called from a gate and that had. Uh, uh, that had led to you switching to oceanography and working on the equatorial undercurrent and that's about where we left it i think right so, so why don't we start there
2: yeah so i did i did this uh thesis about the equatorial undercurrent and i did um and it was it was a pretty abstract sort of thing to go back i mean the um, the model was simple, but there was a lot of um, the challenges were, first of all, numeric in terms of making a numerical model. Uh, and it was a pretty advanced numerical model because I got advice from some sophisticated people. And also I did a lot of uh, at that time, there was very uh, popular to do these kind of boundary layer analyses. So I did a lot of that. And then um, we started in. I think we talked about this uh, on equatorial waves, yeah. Which at the time had almost no literature on it. So th- anyway, that's what I did, and um, finished that in. Uh, th- basically, I was in graduate school for three years, start to finish. I had wow! Two kids, and then Ed and I put a proposal into NASA that. Um, we knew it was highly rated, but NASA shut down that whole line, which was about it was something that about like what we 'd call impacts now, but they decided they weren 't going to fund anything in that line and even though our paper had very little to do with impacts our our proposal and and it was highly rated it wasn 't funded and then um an opera, the uh, mit advertised for an assistant professor position in oceanography and mm-hmm. uh, I decided I'd apply. That it was foolish to be loyal to NASA when they—I felt they just screwed me. You know. Yeah. Um, I mean, even
1: if not, it was probably attractive. I mean,
2: it was attractive. Whether I would have felt right about doing it otherwise, I don't know. You know that it. It, it allowed me to justify to myself jumping ship, you know, so I applied. And okay. uh, I got the job, mostly. I mean, Charney was on my side. They had a... Anyway. And uh, so now I was an assistant professor. So what year is this? Oh, I have to look it up, but it'd be about... Late 70s? 78 or 9. Yeah. Okay. But uh, anyway, the... Um, so, so I did that, and I was teaching um, a course on waves and generally. And then at some point, I started also teaching a course on, uh, it was called Numerical Weather Prediction, but it followed uh, what Norm Phillips had taught. And it had a lot of, it was also a lot about waves and about um, what can go wrong. You know, and a little bit about data simulation, I guess. You mean what can go wrong in forecasting? What can go wrong in, in forecasting? In,
1: in, in, in numerical, weather it is. Yeah. So you
2: were teaching the course. So I was teaching the course and going on. And then, um, just to not go too far in that direction. Um, okay. So in, in um, <clears throat> there was an El Nino in 77 that persisted into 76, and there was a lot associated with it was a lot of blocking, which means... Um, Weather patterns kind of stalled and you know sat in place for a long time. We can go into uh, well, I think that's enough detail for this purpose. Yeah, and the thinking was that maybe this blocking was related to the sea surface temperature patterns in the Pacific, and that had something to do with El Nino. But um, this event seventy seven particularly the seventy seven seventy eight incarnation um one of the things that led to was this uh, huge snowstorm in the boston area oh. that uh, uh was um it it kind of made michael dukakis and who became the presidential candidate yeah okay um in nineteen eighty and you know, he did a great job. Well, what doing. was his job at that point? I can't remember. He was the governor. He was the governor. He was the governor. Oh, he was the governor at that he, time, okay. Yeah, and he came out and, you know, And uh, it was, in one way, it was great. You could cross country ski in the streets. and so Oh, I remember this one.
1: I lived in Connecticut at this time.
2: Ah. We were briefly, yeah, I remember this one. It was really bad in Hartford. Yeah, 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 it would have been, it would have been. So, um, so people... Um, being mostly a meteorology department. Um, anyway, they were interested in the blocking and they were interested in, you know, what made the snowstorm. And, um, okay, so uh, that that was that. And, um, but I thought the El Nino part of this was interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, it's easy but, to see why, given what you've been doing. Yeah, and then, but I um, I didn't do anything much about it, and then one day I had this conversation with Charney, and I said uh, something like, well, somebody should work on this, and um, he said, well, why don't you do it, and he, you know, with a, a little bit of annoyance in his voice, <laughs> and... Um, Meaning that it was, should have been obvious to you? Or, you know, what? It, well, one of the things Charney did that was good was, okay, so once um, I... Um, had, he did something called a, he made up a theory called quasi-geostrophic turbulence Yep, beautiful theory and I made a critique of something and he basically said well you've got a better you have a better one you know or you know we have some, and I this was when I was a student and well I didn't But that, <laughs> but my first reaction was well you know it doesn't really matter if I have a better one because it still my critique could be valid but then I realized that he was asking the right question because if you want to make progress um you don't know, you shouldn't be stopping where you're just debunking what is you should be yeah. saying okay all right then what's what's the right answer if this is the wrong answer yep. anyway um so I think he was saying that in in something like the same thing you know Hey, you want you know if there's a problem to be solved, solve it. Don't don't complain that nobody else is solving it. And oddly, I mean, this it it, it feels foolish to say this, but I mean, in a sense, I had all the right tools. I would worked on equatorial oceanography, but I'd been educated uh, largely as an atmospheric scientist, or almost completely as an atmospheric scientist. So for ocean-atmosphere inter action kind of problems i had a better background than virtually anybody at the time because usually these fields were separate yeah so i was as well qualified to do this as you know as as anybody but it's could really, you see that at that moment at uh, shortly thereafter yeah. i i did see that i thought yeah i should work on this <laughs> but you know it it feels um it's kind of amazing to look back on that in, a, in the sense that, you know, why, why, why wouldn't I have realized that on my own anyway? I mean, maybe I would have eventually, but I, you know, truth is up to that point, I hadn't. And after that point, I thought, yeah, okay. So um, that became my number one, you know, objective was to work this problem. I mean, yeah. You know, uh, and I had thought at the time, that the two best problems in sort of climate were uh, uh, to explain the ice ages, yeah, and and El Nino, which had just become you know a big deal because of this, uh, particularly because of the impacts over the U.S. So people took notice, but um, I had no uh, back. I didn't have the background to deal with uh, paleo climate, so I didn't think about that one so anyway so i started and then i got a student steve zibiak
0: yeah
2: um, we've heard whom, of him yeah who nobody you know um as an assistant professor you didn't get the people that the uh the powers that be thought were the best uh-huh. right but um anyway so we started working on this problem and Um, I first had in mind a simple model that would be, um, you would have time and only the uh, zonal direction, only longitude. We were messing around with this and uh, didn't quite get it to work. But I realized that um, even if it worked, nobody would buy it, you know, that it wouldn't produce... Um, it, it would seem like you know some mathematical trick. That's all, uh, yeah. because it it um, had simplified the physics beyond the point where anything was recognizable. It would have to, to to be that, okay, and that it was best that what I needed was something that would actually make maps that looked like the observed phenomenon, or hopefully looked like. I mean, that was the goal. Yeah. Okay. So um, we started over, this is, you know, 1980 or a little something like that. Okay, so what, um, basically what I did was generalize the thesis, the model that I'd used in my thesis and, um, and also simplify uh, the kind of model that I'd been working on, that I'd worked on at NASA with Paul Schaff. So it was a model that had an ocean mixed layer, uh, but this mixed layer had a temperature that depended on the currents in the surface layer and on um, how much the temperature of water that was upwelled from below the mixed layer. Right. And, um, uh, And, but we simplified the other things like it had a fixed depth. So yeah, that was specified. So you, I mean, you had a sense of how to make a simple model of the
1: equatorial ocean that had the right things in it and you somehow knew what the right things were and how to incorporate them.
2: Yeah. I, I mean,
1: based on some combination of your prior theoretical work and looking at the observations, I guess.
2: That's right. And, you know, I thought what's important here? and and you know tried to go uh with that and um pretty much did okay and the other thing that um uh, the exact time area can't say but um uh, a terrific oceanographer named Klaus Wertke who had done a lot of work on um, el nino and had uh the courage, foresight, whatever you want to call it, to set up a bunch of tide gauges on atolls in the Pacific, which was, you know, a lot of of work. And um, in those days, you couldn't, you know, send messages up to satellites and get the answers down. So somebody had to go out there in some form and get the tapes uh, that recorded what they did. But um, he was after the variations in sea level that went along with um, the variations of other things in the Pacific, most importantly, El Nino events. Yeah. Okay. And he had written some papers about how sea level changed in the 70s, which are are absolutely critical to understanding things. I'll come back to this. Uh, The reason, well, well, I won't come back. I'll start now. The reason it was so important to have these pictures of sea level is that when you look at surface temperature, which seems like the most important thing because that's what the atmosphere cares about, not sea level. Okay. But sea surface temperature can be influenced by horizontal currents, by vertical upwelling, by heat exchange with the atmosphere. And so even now, it's very hard to sort all that out and say what makes that change. Maybe we
1: should take a step back here and just say what the equatorial Pacific looks like and what El Niño is. So normally the western Pacific over by Indonesia, the ocean surface is very warm and you have a lot of rainy weather. And the East Pacific by, you know, South America and, and the Galapagos Islands, as this ocean is relatively cold for the tropics and you have just gloomy stratus clouds but not a lot of rain. And in an El Nino event, the East Pacific warms up, and the whole sort of pattern of rainy weather shifts to the east. And right,
2: so. and so um, I made an ocean model, which in a simple way tried to incorporate all of this. Steve worked on the atmosphere, yeah. so we did this, and um, <clears throat> uh, took a few years. Yeah, and in nineteen in the early nineteen eighty four. Well, I was going to leave MIT. I knew that and move to Lamont. Um, yeah,
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, they had strongly hinted to me that I wouldn't get tenure. Can we talk about this, Mark? Because I mean, sure. You know,
1: MIT has a history of of not giving people tenure. I mean, including people who've gone on to successful careers. But your example is, I think, the most egregious. I mean, if you have to look at one. And say, gee, they really screwed yeah. that one up. I mean, this guy's in the National Academy and has done. I mean, so I mean, I think we can look back on this and say that, you know, they were mistaken in their judgment of you that with with no hesitation whatsoever. So, well, so they've what... said it. If it makes you, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, so I guess what I'm saying is, I'm hoping that you can look back at it dispassionately. So what? So what happened there? I mean, how did they blow that one? Well, um I mean, I mean, this is important, and this is important to you Know those of us younger coming up who may, you know, take our various setbacks hard. You know, it's useful to be able to say, Well, look at Mark. I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it,
2: and so Lamont, I,
1: want, I want to, I want to, I want to, yeah. I want to talk about this if, you,
2: if you're willing. Yeah. and in Lamont, we also have Maureen Ramo uh, as another example of someone. Who, I don't know the story there, actually. But, well, she also got, didn't. Yeah, oh sure. at MIT she didn't get tenure oh, MIT. okay
1: yeah yeah in I fact left- that might have even have been during my time but I didn't know her because so, well yeah. anyway yeah yeah
2: I can go on to other examples but we'll, there we'll are many
1: f- examples it's we'll, safe to we'll say we'll stop there but let's focus on the one at hand we'll stop <laughs> there okay
2: so um you know so what happened was I had a this conversation in it was sometime in 1983 and um uh with the then chair of our department who was at that point Peter Stone and he said well you know I don't think you'll Get tenure, and um, why, why? Why though? Well, you know, they'd gotten letters or something, and they. Uh, I mean, I think part of it was. Um, I. I. You know, I can't say, but part of it was. I worked in an area, um, that. You may find this hard to believe, but actually, there were very few people working on the tropics in either.
1: No, I, I know that that's the case. Yeah, yeah.
2: especially in the ocean, you know. Uh, I mean, the whole field was dominated by mid-latitude, quasi-geostrophic yeah Yeah, uh,
1: I mean, for what it's thinking. worth, a, a few years ago, I'll just tell you that a few years ago, I interviewed Paul Julian, but he said the exact same thing. I mean, nobody reacted to what they'd done for 10 or years or something because they didn't know what to do with it because nobody was working on it.
2: Right. I mean, it was even tropical meteorology, that's right, was a sort of, uh, the, you know, arcane specialty that a few odd people worked on and it was disconnected and tropical oceanography was kind of worse yeah and also um uh and ocean atmosphere interaction you know forget it i mean that was not even on the radar very much Uh, so when a
1: tenure case goes up for those who don't know the system i mean the department will send a lot of letters to people they think should know about your research and ask what do you think of this guy and his work are you guessing that they just said well i don't know what doing something weird, I don't know. I mean, do you think that's what sort of happened, that they didn't well, I think, have any clue?
2: I think I think there were two things, uh, you know, I would say that about this. And it's, you know, again, I'm not really the person to ask in a sense. Uh, I'm curious of your impressions anyway. Well, my though. impression is that most of what I'd done before was very technical. You know, yeah. these papers with Sarachek and my thesis work, which very abstract. And so people who thought oceanographers should be somewhere in the real ocean, you know, didn't get any of it. Um, right, yeah. And people, uh, and numerical modeling wasn't given much consideration by oceanographers, certainly, at that time. I mean, you know, believe me, I could find, you know, Kirk Bryan, who was the one person working with a, uh, aware of, I can remember working with a big ocean model. I mean, he got dumped on a lot, um, you know, just because he was doing that. And, you know, where's the, so, you know I think they and and remember none of this El Nino stuff was out there, uh, except right. uh, you know so except some technical papers that were kind of the pieces of it, but it hadn't been put together so um in you know so they told me I wouldn't leave, and then I went to talk. Uh, Charney had died in between, uh, right, which made a big difference in terms yeah. of I mean I had no uh, support from right. from um, yeah. senior faculty. Yeah. And I went to talk to Carl Wunsch, who's now I would consider a friend. But, you know, at the time, he was powerful. and they, So they had these meetings every six months or a year or something. Right. You know, mostly to discuss business. But Barry Raleigh, who was the director of Lamont, um, had me give them a talk about the El Nino work. Yeah, okay, And he told me afterwards, Carl said oh no, to him, oh, we made a mistake. Wow. Okay. So that was uh that probably you know, doesn't happen that often. No. <laughs> no. Uh it made me feel a little better. But you know, as they say, living well is the best revenge and all that. So yeah. whatever. So, so eighty-five the paper comes out. Eighty-five the paper comes out and you know, at least it was out. So we were on you know, we were on, on record and we had this yeah. model that did it and we were the first yeah. to have anything that was uh, you know, in a sense, a very, a, a quite credible yeah. model.
1: And I mean, no real competition at all, right? I mean, that. No.
2: Um, there were more toy things that, you know, um, uh, how shall I put it? If you want to make something oscillate, you can do it, but it, it didn't do it in a way <laughs> yeah. that, you know, anybody was uh, convinced by.
0: Yeah. Okay.
2: Which is actually how it is right at the moment with a lot of Ice Age models.
0: Uh, yeah.
2: Okay. So um, that was that, and it was something. And then one day, I, I mean, I remember this. I was sitting, um, it was a 4th of July weekend, and it was sitting by a lake reading um, papers. I was reading a paper. Uh, it was by Warren White and some people. And it was uh, something about saying that the way um, sea level changes in the north, in the Equatorial Pacific, but north of the equator, or maybe even a little further out in the tropics, uh, that was a precursor to um, El Nino events. And I didn't buy the paper, buy the argument, and I didn't completely understand what he did because it was uh, pretty methodologically complicated in a way. Which you know, when that happens, we often get quite suspicious. Yeah, you know, just. It's our training. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good instinct. But it put in my head the idea that I said, hey, our <laughs> understanding of the theory of El Nino is that what matters, what the precursor that matters is, is the distribution of sea level in the tropical Pacific. Yeah. So we could try forecasting if we had the initial condition if we could start from something like the right sea level state in the tropical pacific then maybe it would make forecasts yeah okay so um i came in that whenever we went back to work after you know fourth of july weekend um and talked to steve about this and um there were a few problems. Uh, one was there was no sea level maps that you could use to do this, okay? So what we did was we took wind data that had been produced at Florida State by Jim O'Brien's group, okay? And we used it to drive our ocean model uh, to produce sea level and our version of the temperature as well, okay? So we took the obs- what the observed winds now you have to understand that what i'm calling the observed winds was a product made from a fairly sparse network of wind measurements taken from merchant ships and there were all kinds of problems with the measurements um, and it's not there were there were issues in how you turn this into a complete field and so on. So.
1: so can I just translate again for a minute? So basically, the problem you're trying to do is you, you realize you could make a forecast, but to make a forecast, you had to have an initial condition. You had to have the state of the atmosphere in the ocean at the beginning. You didn't have the data you needed to do that, especially from the ocean. So you had the clever idea to use your own model, given atmospheric data to generate the initial condition. It's sort of a clever early version of what we would call data simulation in a way. Yeah. You took yeah. what you have and used the model to fill in the gaps.
2: Right. Now now we have data from satellites we can use and all sorts of yep. other measurements that are in the ocean that we can use. But, you know, this is uh, 1985. So that's 30 odd years ago. Um, so we did this and we decided that the first, um, okay, the 1982 El Nino was, you know, at that point, the biggest El Nino event in, um, depending on how, certainly in a, in a century, okay, and it was huge, and yet um, it wasn't even recognized as going on in the fall of 1982 when it was in full stream. That, there were reasons why it wasn't. Part of that was um, there'd been a volcanic eruption in Mexico, El Chichon, and the satellite data for sea surface temperature, people didn't trust it because they didn't know how to, how to deal with the all of the aerosol that the uh, volcano had put into the mm-hmm. atmosphere and so they didn't believe the temperature measurements that actually did show something like El mm. okay and other measurements just didn't come in in a timely way you yeah. know so um the point was here was an event that was underway owen verdtke my my hero had said in at a meeting in the fall of 1982 this is not an El Nino, okay. not it it's not an El Nino now, it won't be an El Nino. To call this an El Nino is child abuse.
0: Okay.
2: But this is before you're 85. This is 82, 83. This is eighty two. So we're this going is back to the back fall of nineteen eighty-two. Yeah. Okay. And I'm saying you could say the state of the art in prediction was we couldn't even recognize the largest event in the century, when right. right? it was well underway. Right. So I thought. Surely we should be able to do better than that. I mean, that's right. that's really you know you like to go right. after low what you know low hanging fruit. Okay, no, this, this is an important
1: observation. I mean, uh, yeah, it's uh, I mean, yeah, it's it's uh, you were obviously wise to recognize this.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was seemed like okay, uh, and there were some statistical methods for doing predictions around. Anyway, we thought we'll start uh, trying from we'll you know, start with initial and initial conditions, uh, sort of start the forecast from June 1982 conditions. Mm. Okay. You know, we had data past that, but um, we would pretend it was like if it had been June 1982 and we had all the information for June 1982, which in reality we wouldn't have had until for another month or more. But anyway, uh, if we did that, then, uh, you know, what would it have forecast? This is now called a retrospective forecast sometimes, or a hindcast.
1: There's a couple of things before that that got lost sure, in go the ahead. middle because it got disrupted a couple of times. So the first one is um, what well, we talked about last time. So you were at MIT uh, as a student first and you wrote your thesis, and then um, you went, uh, finished, uh, you know, you're out of money, finished in three years very fast, um, and then went back to GISS in New York. Um, we lost some of that material, but I don't want to go through it in detail because I, don't, I just don't want to make you do everything again, no, and I don't it's think fine. it's as critical as some of the other stuff. But you were in you were at GIS, um you were working with Ed Sarachik on the theoretical um, tropical oceanography papers that were the foundation of what came later, although according to both of you they're kind of technical and theoretical and not, you know, not as uh, widely read as some of your other stuff, but they were important. And then... Um, you went back to MIT as a uh, you, you, uh, then you went uh, back to Boston, um, first as a GISS uh, civil servant stationed at uh, MIT. Then you got a faculty position at MIT, uh, and we're working towards the ENSO work with Steve. Um, you were told you weren't going to be able to stay there, uh, weren't going to get tenure. We went through that uh, okay. discussion, trying to and that that I have most of uh, trying to understand I'll be, I'll be how before. MIT blew that one. Um, and then, but then the part I want to ask you to recall a little bit is, is building up to the sort of success with El Nino work. So after, um, I'll summarize again. So after leaving MIT, but knowing you were going to go to Lamont, you took some time, six months, if I remember, or something like that with your family to go to Europe. And then, um, and and during that time, Steve got the model running, so that it could actually simulate El Nino. Was how you described it. I mean, you right. sort of had put the pieces together, and then finally, boom! It had <clears> a <throat> nice time series, and you presented that at a meeting in France,
2: in a, in Belgium, in, in Belgium. Liège. Okay,
1: yeah. yeah. Can you just re- say a little bit about that, since I we didn't?
2: Yeah, <coughs> sure. Well, there's this annual meeting um, in Liège, and um, Steve had just gotten this thing to work, and so I. Uh, I reported it at this meeting and Adrian Gill who was chairing the meeting pronounced that we had uh satisfied the criteria on his checklist whatever they were <laughs> and that this was indeed a simulation of El Nino and the paper there's a paper that was published in science in 1985 and you can look at it and see you know it has maps of sea surface temperature that look pretty well much like a mature El Nino event and, time series that go up and down satisfactorily they uh have an on average four-year period and they're not regular and um you know it was, it was uh in short pretty convincing okay and many people had been working toward this and um uh you know we got we got there first and um it was, uh, you know, it, I mean, it was nice to get the to, it was really uh pretty good feeling when the whole thing, which we'd worked on for years, came together and finally started to work well. And then, you know, we wrote the paper, and so it came out in early 1985.
1: But you said that just now that other people were working on it, and you just got there first. Yeah. But I had the impression from what you told me up to now, that nobody was really working on it in the way that you were. I mean, people were doing things, but you didn't have a... I mean, there was nobody who was kind of
2: close to the solution that you guys found, was there? No, there wasn't, because um, most people were working on it either... uh, I guess I would say it this way. They They made some simplifications that were too simple. Most of the efforts... Remember, at that point, nobody could afford to run these complicated models very much. Uh, I mean, hardly anybody had the resources. GFDL did, and that was almost it, you know. So um, nobody was trying to do this as a complicated thing, and so people made simplifications, but the simplifications were too simple. They had um, taken out too much of the physics that you needed, you know, to get, to get it right. And um, so some of the models, uh, you know, <clears throat> the other pole of this is you can, um, without too much difficulty, make a model that will oscillate in some yeah. way. But, uh, you know, will anyone believe it? Or should anyone believe it is a, perhaps the better question. And, you know, the answer is really no, because it's, if it becomes... Uh, uh, testimony to your, you know, mathematical uh, skills rather than um, really showing a physical explanation of uh, this real-world phenomenon. So we had we had the only approach at the time that was, uh, you know, really satisfactory. And if you look at even the next few papers that had something to do, uh, to say about El Nino that's worth saying...
1: And so building a model of something like El Nino, you have to put in some, the equations have to represent some physical processes, but there's enough slop in how we make physical processes re, you know, be represented in equations, especially when we're simplifying it to a high degree that one could have done it any number of ways and it, and it wouldn't, be, wouldn't have been convincing because it wasn't obvious enough what the connection was to the real phenomena, to the observations and so on, without the maps and all that. That's
2: right. So this, you know, because in the end we had a model that Produced pictures that really that looked like the real thing, okay. It it persuaded people like Adrian Gill that this was yeah. this was it, and those pictures were, um, we could make you know two dimensional maps of the sea surface temperature, for example, and they evolved through time in a way that uh, resembled the way sea surface temperature anomalies during El Nino evolved through time and so that was far more persuasive um than you know a, a simple uh, like like a line drawing let's say of some index that just wiggled up and down yeah okay and uh i did i did realize that when we when we started uh well close to when we started you know but other people mostly kept going with something pretty simple, so you know so they didn't get there yeah. those models for one thing uh one of the other things we did that turned out to be uh inadvertently brilliant was we didn't have the resources to simulate the annual you know the seasonal cycle of changes um, so we specified a mean an average seasonal cycle. Um, you know things change from spring to summer to fall to winter, okay? And we just specified that,
0: and uh, yeah.
2: and therefore it was approximately correct. Whereas the models were trying to simulate that, and they just even now they have trouble; they still have trouble getting that right in the tropical Pacific.
1: Yeah, I mean this is this is important. I mean you you had a a sense of how complex you needed to be to be convincing but also all the ways that the thing could go wrong and how you know, you're know you always putting in some of the answer, and it's a question of how much of the answer you put in versus how much you predict, and that it's, this just strikes me as a case of getting that balance right to <clears throat> a degree that rarely... But um, to pick it up then with you guys, write the paper where you can hindcast 82, 83, and at the same time, you realize that you can forecast the next event, which is coming up in 86, and you then make the decision to talk to your... Bosses, essentially, about how to publicize this, and can you start there because we got cut off in the middle of
2: that. Okay, yeah. I should emphasize, uh, just to you know, kind of mild correction. Um, We relied on um, a wind product, wind data that was produced at Florida State by Jim O'Brien's group, and so we we did do these retrospective forecasts or hindcasts, whatever you want to call them. Back to the early 1970s. Right. Yes. So, and that was, you know, so we had, by 1985, let's say we had, you know, 15 years. Yeah. Okay, of something that happens every four years, so you don't really get a lot of events to practice on. Right. Um,
1: But it wasn't just 82, 83. At least there was a few more. We did as
2: many as we could do uh, given the limitations of the data available to us and so on, so, uh, because, you know, this uh, our forecast is about the real world, you can't make it all up, it's just, uh, you need something that pins you back to the real world. So, um, so we, we had these results that showed, uh, uh, that there would be a modest, a moderate-sized El Nino at the end of 1986, and after the January 1986 forecast, uh, we pretty well trusted our results because we'd done very well in these earlier forecasts at when we started from a January. That was one of the better months. Yeah. So uh, we went to the director, Barry Raleigh, and, you know, uh,
1: said... The director of the Lamont Ordi Observatory, where you worked. part Yeah, of the director University. of
2: the Lamont Ordi Observatory, where we worked in. Barry was uh, had come to Lamont as director from uh, USGS. He was a seismologist. He w- had worked on predicting earthquakes, and you know, as a, he he was really, I think, uh, quite um, taken with the notion you could predict anything in the earth science. Earthquake prediction is really hard, and the progress on that is not uh, is not great. So he, and he brought in Paul Richards as another seismologist, very sharp guy, uh, who, and uh, they sort of, we laid out what we had done, and they, they sort of said, okay, it's good science, so go ahead, and um, I think I'd mentioned that uh, an earlier paper reporting this work um, had been rejected by science, yeah. and Barry, uh, we rewrote the paper, I think with more emphasis on forecasting, But Barry, um, uh, I think, called somebody and at least got Nature to review it. Um, With Nature and Science and other high-profile journals, uh, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS, uh, most papers are just rejected by the editor without sending it out to peer review. Right. Then as now. Then as now. They make a decision based on how important they think it is or... Whatever it is they make a decision on. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I think it's actually basically journalistic criteria rather yeah. than scientific, which, you know, is okay. We, we should communicate with the yeah. outside world, but it's we, we all have to struggle to not view it as a decision on the merits. Anyhow,
2: <clears throat> um, so we wrote a paper, uh, Kane Zbiak and Dolan, and um, we also had a press conference, and um, Barry connected us with somebody who lived near, near Lamont, uh, Roger Jelinek who had been a worked been a journalist for the New York Times and others and um, he helped us write a press release and it turned out and we had a press conference and that turned out very well uh, to have a press release because essentially the reporters who are not too good or are too lazy or both um, simply quote the press release so they're more likely to get it right you know the ones who were really good and have a lot of time to dig into it, like the, the ones for the New York Times or something, uh, they, you know, they work at it, and they, they write their own, they wrote their own story, but um, still, I think it was good to give them this, uh, this kind of guidance. Anyway, we did this, and um, at that time, it was not very common for, and it was not very accepted for people in our community to actually talk to the press or the public. I mean, you talked about how it was unusual
1: to talk to the press or the public. It was also unusual to make a forecast of anything other than day-to-day weather, which the Weather Service did. And so, I mean, this decision to go to the lab director in the first place and ask for advice was, you know, the recognition that you felt a little bit on shaky ground.
2: That's right. As we, a still
1: relatively young uh, scientist yeah, as well, yeah. although you must have felt that this, you know, that you, yeah. uh, you know, not so not so uh, green. But
2: well, I was forty years old, you know, which is, um, uh, but had zero experience in talking to the public or the press or, uh, so when you,
1: know. you went to them, you were already thinking to to talk to the press. I mean, it wasn't just a question of how to get the paper published. You that that was your idea. Or that was their idea.
2: Well. Um, Good question. I don't. I don't think we were. Well. Well. Here's. Here's. I guess the pro. Here's the way. What I remember. Okay. Um, we were skittish about the whole thing, even within kind of within the science community. Yeah. And. Um, so. And I also did recognize that whatever we did with something like this, it would implicate the institution where I work.
1: So I mean you had so it wasn't just concern for your some risk to your own career you had a sense of the historic uh nature of this sounds like.
2: Yeah I mean as you were saying you know no one had done a forecast like this and this is now three years or less uh, um, after the 1982-83 El Nino which was a a huge El Nino with some pretty terrible consequences. Um, and and I mean and you understood
1: that. I mean, in other words, <clears throat> the, the ramifications of El Nino for human yeah. society, you were well aware of that and you knew the, the literature on that and there was a literature on that. So in other words, you, you knew that this event that you were forecasting could have a big impact. You knew that it was unusual to predict it. And you must have also known that if you made a prediction and you put it out there that, you know, people might do things based on that. So that was a responsibility.
2: And it, is that all fair? All fair. And, and you know, mm-hmm. the, the first question is, okay, what do you do? Uh, you know, how much confidence do you have that you're right? Because obviously uh, not just, okay, it's embarrassing if we're wrong, but if we give people wrong guidance and get them all, you know, I mean, this was the the biggest risk, in a sense, for us and for the institution. You get people all stirred up, and then nothing happens. We look irresponsible, and so does the the so do the people who uh, pay our salary. We had worked really hard to make a model that did the simulation in a in a kind of generic sense of something that looks like El Nino and that oscillates with the right time and so on and so forth. But we hadn't been thinking about prediction at all and we hadn't you know tied it in that tight that tightly with the real world of we had never done anything uh, before the summer of 1985 where we used a set of initial conditions a starting point that uh, resembled the real world yeah you know Steve Zibiak was trying to get a thesis so he did we made this model and we started it out by blowing a really strong wind, much stronger than reality, over the model uh, to get it going, you know. We wanted to make sure it would do something,
0: okay? yeah.
2: it was completely unrealistic. So the fact that it worked as soon as we started doing realistic things actually added to the sense of confidence. I, you know, I uh, hadn't thought about that in a long time, but it's true, you know. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's understandable we, uh, you know, we hadn't sweated um, to make the, we'd sweated to make the model work, but not to make the forecast work. Yeah, okay. So, uh, so I was, you know, fairly confident and, you know, one thought, I thought, uh, and others that okay, this could do some good if we're right, you know, and people paid attention. The danger, in a sense, was that the 82-83 event, which was what was in people's minds, was really a, a, an extreme event, uh, one of the very rare ones. It was the largest event uh, in the 20th century by a good margin, and we um, were predicting something that was much more modest, much more moderate, so it wouldn't have as uh, strong a set of consequences. And we had to try to convey that, I see,
0: yeah.
1: So, I mean, so, yeah, so this was a very uh, unusual thing to be doing for a scientist in our field, even though it's sort of surprising to say that because we think the whole field is about prediction. But very few of us actually do make a prediction like this, and certainly not under this kind of public scrutiny. So, I mean, and and you said that you thought you could do some good. So, I mean, I asked you, you know, last time whether you had gotten into this field out of a sense of... um, you know, whether that decision had any connection to your uh, social consciousness and your civil rights work and all that, and it was pretty, your answer was pretty unequivocally no, but at this point, you must have started to see that it, there was, I mean, something, uh, there must have started,
0: it yeah, must yeah. have
2: started to be less unequivocal at this, by this point, no? Uh, well, no, absolutely, I mean, the... Uh... The, the thing was, I got into a field which seemed like, uh, kind of related to, uh, fairly abstract applied mathematics, uh, and had no, uh, when I was in oceanography particularly, and had no, no obvious social benefit or harm for that matter. Right. And, um... And that was a you draw. Know, and that was fine. It was, you know, it was like escaping from, uh... Yeah. It, you know, that's, um... Look, uh one of the things about scientists as a group is that we kind of, um, more than most people, I think, live in our own heads. To a fault, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. You can ask our wives. <laughs> or husbands. <laughs> yeah, or husbands now. You know, you can ask you can ask <laughs> the significant others uh, how it is to live with such a person, you know, and uh, they can complain we don't pay attention, you know, because we're off somewhere. And... <clears throat> so it's kind of an escape if you will to uh from the you know the complexities of human interactions which are uh right you know as as you all know are not always easy so they may be rewarding but they're not always easy
1: so the this recognition i mean but you knew about the con- you know you knew that el nino was a real thing that it had con- big consequences but this this sort of recognition that 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 was now part of your Uh, you know, psyche and working on it was, sounds like it must have been around this time when everything started to work.
2: That's right. I mean, I I had, uh, if you will, gotten away from all the, you know, social uh, uh, conscience kind of things. Uh, Well, that's not completely fair, but I mostly had gotten away from that, uh, you know, uh, and uh, was just doing this. And then I you know I had children um, when I was in graduate school my my mother-in-law died of cancer my mother died of cancer yeah. uh, you know we had uh, two small children we had no money we had it, it was enough to just get through yeah uh, I hear you that. know and um, and that was uh, okay and so I finished a thesis and that was one thing and then you know wanted to work on uh, I I guess somewhere within me, I did want to work on something important and, uh, you know, and interesting.
1: So you make this prediction, it's successful, um, and, uh, you know, it's recognized as successful. You said that it took five years or something for the community to fully accept it, uh, you know, that that you could make these predictions with some reliability. But nonetheless, you know, at this point, you're very established at Lamont. Um, you're kind of building a group. So this is the sort of achievement for which, I mean, you've done a lot of remarkable things in your career, but this is the one that, you know, everything must have been different before and after this in in some way, right? I mean, at least that's what it looks like.
2: Yes, well, I definitely felt better. (laughs) You know, so that was good. And very good, actually. (laughs)
1: What I wanted to... Uh, where I wanted to catch up with you again, um, is, uh, picking up on this theme of the relevance, societal relevance of the work. you you start, you eventually started doing, uh, a lot of work on impacts, really trying to understand that, that side of it, how El Nino influences people around the world. Um, and so that starts with this, with, the uh, work on maize in Zimbabwe. So can we pick up there. Yeah.
2: So it was Mickey who who's a wonderful uh, a social scientist who was really the first person to work on um, uh, climate impacts in as a social scientist, and he was at NCAR, which is, he was the only social scientist there, I guess. National Center for to,
1: Atmospheric Research, for yeah, those who are not yeah, full uh, of, in uh, Boulder, you know, Colorado.
2: People who did uh, did natural science and, you know, atmosphere, ocean, and so on, and Uh, fly planes into uh, weather and so on. So, um, anyway, Mickey had this meeting on famine early warning systems, which are called FUSE. Uh, It was supposed to be held in Addis Ababa, but it ended up being in Budapest uh, because it was cheaper to do it there and fly Africans to Budapest rather than uh, around Africa Uh, because most of the people there were, were from Africa. And I, um, during this meeting, um, Roger Buckland, who was an agricultural economist, showed this uh, curve of uh, the annual maize yield, or for us Americans, corn yield in uh, Zimbabwe. And I looked at the curve and I said, I can predict that because it looks just like the southern oscillation curve, which, you know, I had in my head. And uh, this
1: was the time for, series. I mean, you, the you, time series, you know, In right. other words, how this, how it goes up yeah. and down over time. You could
2: see the El Ninos. In the yeah, spikes. the yield in 1970, 1971, mm-hmm. and then it's down in 1973 uh, because the 72-73 El Nino, you know, kicked it down. Uh, yep. Because during uh, in an El Nino year, you expect drought in Zimbabwe. That's the normal. Uh, what usually happens. And you knew that already. And I knew, uh, actually, I don't think I knew that uh, then, oh. but I knew, I might, I might, you know, it was discoverable. But uh, you knew something, or they wouldn't have invited you to this meeting, right? Yeah. Or you would well, to go? I knew a lot about, uh, you know, I knew a lot about El Nino, and I knew Mickey. Yeah. Oh, okay. uh, yeah. And I made predictions, and so there was a question, you know, of applying this, and right. you know, but, and, and it was... So you were is, very ready to see this plot. Yeah, it wasn't like is, a shock. That's right. And, I mean, I was, that's right, Uh, you know, in a sense, uh, uh, at some other earlier point in life, I could have seen the same thing, it would have meant nothing, Yeah. you know, Uh, and, uh, but you raise a good question, you know, which is, okay, so I was somewhat into this, well, Mickey had done work on impacts of El Nino, like on fisheries in Peru, and so on, and so, uh... You know, although I hadn't worked on that directly, I was clearly, you know, involved and there were, uh, but but I actually, I have to say, I can't remember whether I knew about the drought in Southern Africa. I, yes, I did. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I was aware of it in a general way, but it's another thing to see it in a time series of, of a crop. Yeah. You know. And um, so anyway, I said, I could recognize that. And these guys said, no, you know, that's impossible because, first of all, there's the transition from Rhodesia to Zimbabwe in the middle of this time period. And that would have made a big impact and uh, would have, you know, and then there's the fact that it's not enough to have a seasonal um, what to know just you know there was less rain or more rain in the season because it depends on the timing within the season and i knew nothing about uh how plants grow i mean i don't even really my wife gardens i don't <laughs> garden <laughs> okay
1: so, but these guys are saying to you in i mean this is uh what yeah. there's this is a converse, you know many interdisciplinary conversations go like this in a sense well n- not not many have you know the yeah, yeah. No, not many have somebody bringing to it what you were bringing to this one, but, but at the same time, it's a standard reaction to say, you know, we know this thing, we've studied this phenomenon. It can't possibly be as simple as you're saying it is. That's you right. know, you outsider guy with your equations and all that, you know, we, we, we know maze, and, and it's not, you know, it That's can't right. be that easy.
2: <laughs> yeah, whatever I study is much more complicated than you guys realize, and uh, you can't possibly have much to bring into it because you haven't. Yeah.
1: But, it's not always an unhealthy reaction, but sometimes no, no, it's and, wrong. You know. And
2: anyway, I saw this time series, and I and I went back. I got a copy of it from Roger Buckland, uh, and um, I I came back to Lamont. And fortunately, I had a student Guidon Echel who had um, had spent time had worked on a kibbutz, and so he both knew something actually about agriculture, about how to grow things, and he also had plenty of contacts. Maybe we should say at this point that although Gidon then worked on a bunch of things for a
1: lot of years, in recent years, uh, when he's at Bard College, he's been working on uh, food.
2: I mean, food and climate. Food and climate. He's been working he's on, uh, on, on the environmental impacts of choices you make about diet and choices about uh, uh, kinds of farming practice. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, you, you mentioned him last time
1: in this context, and I didn't put it together, that actually he's sort of...
2: He's combat that, it, that yeah.
1: it's, it must have started there and something. Well, maybe it started on the Kibbutz, but I but mean, it, but this work must have been uh, formative for him as well. He yeah. end up being co-author on this thing. Oh yes, yes, yeah,
2: it's uh, uh, Kane, Michelle, uh, and Buckland, or yeah. Buckland. I can't remember the order, but I mean, he did a lot of important, you know, work. So we published that, and uh, it had an impact. And I think I mentioned that. Um, a few years later, I did. Uh, I had a student, and uh, we did a study looking at every cereal crop in every country in the world, okay, and it turns out that the clearest signal is in maize in Zimbabwe, okay, but I certainly didn't know that. At the time we wrote the paper, maize in Zimbabwe was the only such curve I ever looked at, right? took well, a so while to yeah. gather all the data and the, for the other stuff. Yeah, so maybe And were there's lucky plenty of more actually. You do
1: this and then I mean at this point this is in the this is in the late 90s already, I think. Right? Yeah,
2: yeah, I think the that paper was published no early 90s. Early I think 90s, that paper oh. was published in 90 published in 94, so we did oh, probably okay. did the work the year before.
1: 94. Okay. So where where I wanted to pick up now if it's okay Mark is um Sure. is when global warming came into your work and how, uh, why it did when it did and not earlier or later and all that, because you, you know, you, you were aware of it. I mean, as was there, you know, anybody who was in the field, I mean, you'd been around Charney and he'd written the Charney report and you, you know, you knew Hansen from GISS, and you, you know, but you'd been focused on natural variability. And then at some point, you know, if I read your list of papers at some point, Uh, you know, there start being global warming papers in there. Yeah. And so I just want to try to get at that connection and how
2: that happened. Okay, well, you know, by now, I mean, global warming is the, you know, proverbial 800-pound gorilla. If you work in our field, uh, it's pretty hard to get away from it. But my, I was interested in in natural variability and uh, because that's what I'd done, and the and impacts, and I f- felt <coughs> pretty strongly that if we wanted to learn about imp- how to adapt to impacts of what we call climate change, which we is a shorthand for clim- anthropogenic climate change, and we mean uh, what humans have done, and the, and it's a secular change; it's getting warmer and warmer. Secular means goes in one direction, doesn't come back. Yeah, yeah. My, yeah, and. Um, Whereas you know uh, variability like Enso goes up and down. Yep. Okay. And but the very, and and we call that variability. We call the other change in a dictionary. They're actually synony- synonymous. But anyway, uh, the going up and down meant to me that there were examples of how people adapt that you could look at uh, and analyze and understand and try to get some insight into. Um, how people might adapt to um, climate change, and of course there are differences because of this—you know—one being up and down, and the other being um, uh, a, a consistent change in a single direction. But nonetheless, you know, you would you would get some sense of what what people do when they finally come to realize that uh, changes changes are happening.
1: So, so I mean, so in other words, you were thinking about global warming before you were working on it. I mean you saw a connection there,
2: yes the I mean, work I saw a connection, but you know other people were working on global warming, and I was also a little uh i mean the problem with that if you go back twenty years or thirty years uh then what you could do scientifically about global warming was in the nature of a uh you know projection or projection, and it was. It's very difficult to see how to verify any of it it it, there wasn't you know it hadn't happened yet okay Um, unfortunately that problem uh, is no longer uh, with us because I think at this point global the signal of anthropogenic interference in the climate system is so clear that you can look at a a number of things and see what it did and you can also kind of uh, begin to see what it means in terms of, you know, categories like sea level rise or more severe storms. And uh, I I think if we, maybe we'll talk about this more later, but if you look at some of the things that have happened um, and that people now work on, they aren't necessarily things that people noticed in the Predictions that were made or projections that were made before. Yeah, right. But after they happen, you can see uh, sometimes immediately, sometimes with a lot of work, how they relate to, you know, what we human beings have done to the atmosphere.
1: Well, s- since we're here, I mean, since you brought it up, I mean, what you said a couple seconds ago uh, was that uh, you were held back a little bit, if I understood you right, from doing global warming because you couldn't verify the predictions. I mean, you'd had this experience of predicting something, being able to test it, you know, that's very kind of model of how the scientific method is supposed to work. And here you didn't have that option. And so, you know, you didn't uh, do it as early as some people. But I want to make the connection to, um, because we discussed it a little bit last time, and I thought it's a very uh, provocative comparison that had never occurred to me before, About Hanson's eighty-eight testimony to Congress, which was in a sense making a, you know, also being out on a limb and making a prediction, maybe even a more uh, scary one than yours. I mean, scary for him, you know, scary for somebody—the person doing it—and and and, you know, if you see any parallel there, and what you thought of that at the time. And
2: well, one of the things, yes. So that's eighty-eight,
1: if my memory serves. We're going back a little bit, right?
2: Right. I, I. I knew Hansen not extremely well because he was a postdoc at GISS when I worked there in the late 60s. Yeah,
1: which is when he started on this problem, more or less, right? Or maybe it was a little later.
2: No, it was a little later. This is interesting, that um, when Charney was putting together the Charney Report, which is a... uh, I think the publication date is 1979. uh, Yeah, okay. um, Sounds right. Which was a National Academy of Sciences report on... um, essentially, you know, on global warming, on anthropogenic climate change, uh, and because people had noticed it, but there wasn't any um, report. Uh, there had been, um, people were aware of what's what we now call the Keeling Curve, basically the uh, amount of CO2 in the atmosphere as measured at a station in uh, Hawaii, in Mauna Loa, Hawaii, um, organized by, by Dave Keeling, um, who had done this at the instigation of Roger Revell, who, anyway, that's a whole other history, but <clears throat> Charney did this report, and he, he knew Hansen because he had had a connection to GISS, which I talked about a little bit, yeah, and, um, he got Hansen, who worked on radiative transfer, which is, you know, a subset of how radiation goes through, through the atmosphere, and, uh, either bounces off molecules or is absorbed by them, and uh, <laughs> on the way down, it's, uh, you know, solar radiation, which is uh, more like light, and on the way up, it's um, what is pre- coming off the Earth's surface, which is more like heat. Yeah, this is say. the greenhouse effect. I mean, Yeah, work. the greenhouse <laughs> effect, right, but then the green, remember that there is a greenhouse effect even before we started adding CO2 to the atmosphere, because... Sure. The atmosphere always had CO two and other greenhouse gases in it, just right. not so many. Otherwise, we'd be a frozen ball of rock. That's right. Uh, we need some of those, but we don't need we need to be in the Goldilocks place. You right. know. Enough, but not too many. Anyway, so he got Hansen to work on this problem, and uh, I read somewhere, and gosh, I can't remember where, that, um, but as reported by. Jim Hansen's wife, you know, he uh, started working on this and he immediately grasped that this was the, you know, the great problem for him uh, and was uh, absorbed by it, you know, uh, uh, just uh, intensely absorbed. So, um, that was, seven, you know, let's say the late, very late 70s and that's when Hansen really started working on this and then ten years later he testifies to Congress and says, number one, uh, um, you know, 99% or whatever percent, I think that. Sure, that uh, we're we're already seeing this uh, effect of anthropogenic interference in the climate system, and I also predict that one of the next three years will be the warmest on record. And when I look back at this, uh, and I I, I can't, um you know when i heard this i thought this was this was pretty gutsy but uh as you know as someone who made predictions i appreciated making a prediction like this i also appreciated that if um you had to be really convinced there was global warming because if if whether the ups if the ups and downs of uh the global temperature are kind of random then uh the odds that the net one of the next three years will be the warmest ever are uh, very, very slight. But as I think, as we discussed, and we'll probably want to discuss again, uh, yeah. Hansen has always been ahead of us. Someone uh, wrote, uh, Eric Holhouse, who writes a column. Yeah, uh, climate
1: journalist, yeah.
2: Yeah, he's a climate journalist. Um, and he wrote that a few years ago, Hansen has a history of being alarmist and right.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, but what what just really strikes me looking back on it and hearing your story is that this was just a couple of years after your Enso prediction. So when you say you, could, you thought it's a gutsy move, I mean, you, you must have been very acutely sensitive to that. Uh, but so, I mean, he and he must have gotten a lot of flack from people. But but uh, you must have felt uh, more on his side of that,
2: <laughs> I imagine. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, uh, uh, I thought that, it, you know, I, I admired, I admired his, his guts for doing that. Um, and one of the things uh, that we scientists talk about a lot is the fact that when we talk about something like global warming, we do it in the language we're used to, so we don't want to say this is happening unless we're you know highly certain of it, okay? Whereas in life, we all take risks. I mean, you get married, you buy uh, you know you get married, and are you 99 percent sure it's going to work out? Well, nobody if you wait until you're 99 percent sure you you never uh, you'd never get married, okay. Or a general uh, I met, uh, General Sullivan, who used to be the Army Chief of Staff, said, well, you know, if you wait for certainty on the battlefield, bad things will happen. In any case, there is, uh, you know, uh, uh, for, uh, let's say, there are good reasons why scientists in doing these kind of things are conservative, but in informing the public, it, it, is arguably and i think uh more than arguably i think it's misleading uh, to present the information we do because we um it it doesn't conform to the way we all evaluate risk
0: okay yeah
2: i i have um let's say insurance on a house that uh you know, fire insurance. The chances that it'll burn down are are actually very small, but I can't afford that risk, so I uh, I insure it. You know, because I'm aware that it's not simply the probability of it burning down that matters; it's also the cost of that happening. Yeah. So, you know, if if we and and there are uh, economists who've kind of re looked at the risks of climate change in this way, like Marty Weitzman. Um, yeah. And, you know, the point is that we report, we tend to report the parts of climate change that we feel certain about rather than getting into the fact that there's uh, you know, a small chance of it being
1: uh, a whole lot worse. Yeah. No, uncertainty is not our friend. I mean, I think this is being recognized and it's changing now, but it's something that we're still struggling with, I mean, I don't really buy the argument that the inaction on climate is because of scientists bad communicating. I think the denial disinformation movement is uh you know has been very effective, and if anything, we're just not you know scientists were not prepared for that sort of street fight you know that that propaganda battle that it's been, but nonetheless I mean there's some truth to it that that we you know we do err on the side of least drama the ipcc report's very dry and very not scary enough i mean if you know how to read it it's scary but you have to know how to read it so, so i think this gets us to the question of of what we should be doing now i mean we're historically scientists are afraid of being advocates many of them are but at the same time many are sort of feeling that we should be advocates now and that boundary between the scientific and the personal and the political um is becoming something that many of us feel we have to re-examine
2: that's the real thing and it's not we are not the ones who um uh, know how or ever knew how to um get a function in this kind of a political fight i mean we need we need allies and uh people who have more expertise in this, and I would say that, um, you know, somehow it got to, you know, an example of, though, of kind of miscommunication that strikes me is scientists stopped saying global warming and started saying climate change because it's a more accurate description, Yeah. okay? But, in fact, Republicans had guys running focus groups um who uh to show that people were less alarmed by the phrase climate change than they were by the phrase global warming and it gives you the opening to say well climate is always changing so what's the big deal yeah and you know that's kind of an example of uh where uh We, you know, in a sense, communicated in the wrong way, but, um, you know, nobody, if you want, nobody told us. Uh, Nobody realized this uh, as early as they should have, and the kind of people who might have realized it uh, didn't say anything. I mean, this is, it should have been an expert in you know in a sense in how you communicate.
1: Yeah, and and now I think it is being recognized and there is a bit of a backlash from the left on the on the term climate change. People feel it's I mean this is coming to be understood although it still remains the the term you see in the media. But I want to I mean to the point that you know we shouldn't okay. have to be the best communicators. We're not trained for it. We need allies. I I agree with all of that, but I also think there is this notion that we shouldn't be advocates and some people, uh, Gavin Schmidt comes to my mind, but I think he attributes it to Steve Schneider and there's others argue that science has always been political. It always is political. You hope it's not political in the way that you sit down and do your work, but in the, in, you know, it always has some connection to the outer world. And if you're speaking publicly, you are an advocate and you should accept that um, and just be conscious of it and try to advocate in an honest and clear way and state what your values are and so forth. But what that comes to me pragmatically, I mean, if we think back to the, um, even with we're, if we're working with journalists and, and others, if we think back to the issue of how we communicate risk and that we're too conservative and we want to disprove the null hypothesis at 95%, to me, that comes down to, at the end, telling the listener what you actually think. In other words, we as scientists have this dichotomy in our mind. I mean, you, you can, you know, it, it, it's on the one hand, We can see it in your early work on El Nino that you, I mean, it was different because it's a different kind of societal issue. It doesn't have the same politics around it, but, but, you know, you could do this abstract work. And then at some point you realize it has an impact, but you have sort of two modes of thinking about it. And I think we all have that. And so we can be in this mode of we communicate with other scientists. We have the conventions of that, which are very conservative. And then we have what we actually think which is when we read the IPCC report if we, or we read whatever the document is and we understand the reality of what's happening, and as the impacts start to sink in for us, which I think has come at different, you know, some of us can work on this for a long time while remaining
2: clinical. Yeah, I, well, let me, right, I agree. I mean, I think what it comes down to is this. Uh, okay, as a climate scientist, I look at the evidence, and we know uh, global warming is here, that it's going to get worse, that the consequences are uh, are bad and maybe over the next, let's say, 50, 80 years are bad and maybe they're, you know, really, really bad as a possibility. It's a big risk. I don't wish to inflict that risk on my grandchildren or my children or others uh, to come after. And uh, I think we have a responsibility, therefore, to make clear what the risk is. Um, and we, the way we've come at this so far is we've not um, managed to do that. Now, uh, I, th- I think it does mean um, you know, saying what we think in the way human beings communicate to each other more you know, normally than the way scientists. See, even when we do science, when we're talking about some ideas that are not yet completely settled, okay, yep. we'll talk about, you know, all sorts of things, and it's not, I think this, I feel this, you know, my instinct is, etc. cetera. We, yes. We're perfectly comfortable doing that. When we publish a paper, you can't do that. You have to have it, right. you know, you have to make a case that is in, in I mean... Actually, doesn't always happen, but you know, you the ideal is that you've made a case that uh, you can say there's a high uh, certainty that this is right. Okay.
1: Well, and, and and it's worth saying that the peer review process, which is the sort of you know the, the ritual of, of the scientific publication part, the peer review process, is such that it it, it 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 forces you to make the weakest version of your claim that you can make, because right. you'll get beat up and your paper won't be
2: published if you do anything else. Yeah, I mean, the peer review process in this instance has taken things that might be true but aren't well enough established and, and, and wiped them out, right? You know. And that happens a lot, okay? And the, the thing, too, is, um, I mean, I think we don't have to go quite that far with, uh, with global warming because I think even what we know um, is enough uh, if we just focus more on, if you want, the, the tail of the distribution, the, some of the things that could happen that maybe aren't so sure, if we add them in when we make statements about what the risk is, um, then we would be saying more honestly you know, what we feel. That this is really yeah. dangerous, and somebody once compared, uh, you know, changing the climate system to like turning an aircraft carrier. You yeah, know, you have to, you know, you really have to start. I don't know, a miles ahead or something, to, in order to. If you want to make a turn there, you better get going now. Yeah, and and we've not only reached that point, we've passed it because we're continuing to burn fossil fuels. We're not even slowing down. I mean, we can as yeah. a, as a right. entire planet. You know, right. You know, and, the U- and the U and
1: the U S government is actively trying to stop, uh, the world from doing anything with some degree of success.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, we have an ad- a president and an administration that's still promoting coal. I mean, it's crazy. Right. And, but you know, to get more depressed, you look, uh, Australia just had an election and, and one guy was sort of running and, on climate change and the other one, uh, wanted to slow down what they did. And, uh, He's the one who won, and
0: Australia is a place
2: where the impact of climate change is already felt much more severely than it's felt in the U.S., and, you know, this is an educated, sophisticated population, and yet yet this is how they voted. They voted uh, in terms of some, you know, other issues, more immediate interests, more fear of immigration, whatever uh, you want to say, but that's a place which ought to have seen even more clearly than in the U.S. or Europe that climate change is upon us.
1: Yeah, now the current political situation in the world leaves little reason for hope in the short term, except that we know things can change quickly, so maybe it's there. But I, I want to come back to the, the sort of connection between the scientific and the the, the personal and the political. I mean, I want to share my own perspective and see if you've experienced anything similar so I you know I started working on in this field in the 90s and um, and I was very aware of climate change I mean I got into it because my wife uh, suggested that I do it and she was thinking of global warming in the early 90s but I didn't work on that until at least 10 years later Um, it just seemed to me I mean I believed it I was you know I felt some intellectual concern over it but I thought it was kind of you know it was political and, and yeah you couldn't really test the predictions and I, you know I had whatever reasons I had and then eventually I started working on it at least to some degree it's still only a fraction of my work but I you know at some degree in, over the last God, know, 10 15 years now I have been but but for me the w- recent years I've been struck only in hindsight by how disconnected I was from it at a human level in other words seeing Trump get elected and then now on the from the other direction seeing these kids protesting in Europe and the US i've been i've been surprised that i've been surprised in other words it's kind of seems amazing that these kids are doing it and i mean i i support them but and i think it's wonderful but i've also been taken by surprise by it and and it's in some way made me realize that it's real in a way that i didn't even realize that I didn't realize. You know what I mean? I mean, in other words, you can study these things clinically and you can, if anybody asks you, you'll say what you think. You know, you'll say it's a problem or whatever, but it's somehow different now. Do you have that sense?
2: Well, I do, because I think where there's more, uh, there's more of a realization that we've, we've run out of time. You know, so it, this becomes a more urgent thing. And again, you know, I would say, uh, I look at Hanson, he sort of felt this way earlier, okay? Yeah. And uh, you could say he was right, but it's a kind of, it's just like saying the society has been slow to pick up on how important this is, and maybe we've been a little too slow uh, also to, you know, to move along the path, that the path I see for us is, um, okay, you started out, or like I... Did okay aware of this problem in the 90s, but you worked on other things okay, and it soon became virtually impossible to work in this field without at least touching on global warming, and the things you do now that relate to extreme events okay yeah and risk and and so on okay are in inextricable from at, at this point you know at this stage of, of yeah of, yeah time. To uh, they're just you know it it's global warming research. It has to be. It can't be anything else. I mean, it's just
1: there's other dimensions to it, but but that's the big one. Yeah, yeah. you
2: simply can't ignore that. It's too it's too much uh, in your face. Yeah, you know, in in. I that. mean, we're
1: not trying to ignore it, but but no, yeah. no, no. I mean,
2: it's it's like uh you know it 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 it's like if you're going to work this problem, this is this is a part of it. You must you must pay attention to and you know and and the same thing i feel about uh you know some of the things i do i mean we look at we look at data over the last decades and and things change and you say well why is that is that you know is is that something that uh um, is just uh, kind of an accident uh, you know one of the ups and downs of the internal machinations of the climate system or is it due to global warming and You know, a lot of the times it's due to global warming. And uh, you're stuck with trying to understand how increasing greenhouse gases led to, uh, uh, you know, for example, um, a warming. uh, One of the things I work on, maybe this matters to Europe, is that uh, in the North Atlantic, south of Greenland, things haven't gotten warmer. They've gotten relatively colder. Why is that? that's a little hard to understand but it seems to in, impact the weather in Europe um and then we uh the changes in the tropical pacific over the last few decades are different from what models say they would be so why is that because that has a big impact and this yeah. is clearly related and well i think it's clearly related to to global warming okay maybe these aren't the biggest issues anymore because uh you know, one thing that we we did touch on obliquely in, in some of the things you said earlier, yeah. were that uh, it, it isn't, I mean, it's a, there's value in uh, improving the science and being able to make more precise uh, statements about what will happen in order to make Uh, more cost-effective, take more cost-effective actions to adapt to them or mitigate, right? Yeah. But uh, we, uh, you know, we can agree, I'm sure Adam and I can agree, that we've taken the science far enough so that the issue of whether there'll be uh, climate changes due to human interaction that are going to be damaging to society as we know it, to the planet as we know it. There's no question about that. We could do it more precisely. We could do it better. But that's not the issue. The issue is the uh, the political opposition uh, that is fostered by disinformation campaigns from those who have a lot to lose, like fossil fuel companies, plus the general uh, sense that we all we human beings have of... Uh, you know, I'm worried about the next paycheck, or what happens next, or my family, or something in the uh, short run. No. Yeah.
1: Well, okay. So while we're while we're here, um, since you uh, opened, th- th- it up. R- opened it up, so let's uh, uh, and since I know you've got places to be, so let's talk about what is the advice for the young people, and maybe I'll even I don't I'm not young anymore, but I, I I'm sort of with them on this one in the sense that. If we think about the young people in our field now, say current graduate students, and I've been talking to a couple of them um, recently, it it may be true that some of them now got into it more idealistically than we did. I mean, I think there are starting to be a generation of climate scientists who are, in fact, drawn Mm -hmm. into this field to some extent because of the societal importance of it. I think that's happening more and more. Of course, they still have to be science nerds or they'll never survive the the education, but right. you know, but but That's you know, but right. nonetheless, this is a conscious part of some of their motivation. But the the two graduate students I have now, um, mm-hmm. Melanie Bailey and Zane Martin, I've been talking to them about this, and it, I don't have the impression that either of them are. That, in other words, these are people twenty years younger than me, and they still entered it not really, out of social consciousness. You know, maybe a little in the way that mm-hmm. I did a little, but not really very much. Nonetheless. They're now faced with the situation that we're just describing, right, where regardless of why they got into it, um, regardless of we got it, how we got into it, I include myself here, you know, now we're in the situation we're in where we feel this is a huge problem. And we as scientists have some connection to it that's a little more than the average person. We certainly can't say that we don't understand the science or we can't say that we don't, you know, we, we're, right. we're obviously on the inside of it in a way that not everybody is. So the question is, what should we be doing about it? Given that, as you said, and I totally agree with you, and I think the uh, the students, uh, certainly two students I've been talking to, totally agree with you, um, that uh, science is not the solution anymore. In other words, you can imagine, well, a lot of times we write our grant proposals saying we're going to reduce some uncertainty, we're going to make some projection or prediction better. We're sort of imagining a benign world government that's going to take our advice and make some decision better, you know, optimizing, you know, some risk management. Uh, and maybe that happens in some sectors of the world. But if you think about the big problem of, of climate and, you know, the, the political problem, the problem of actually uh, averting the catastrophe that the whole planet is heading towards, clearly the science now is enough. I mean, we don't, we're not really, and the, and the political sphere is so, certainly the United States and many other places, is so far behind what we think should be happening, that the extra difference that a little more science is going to make is irrelevant. I mean, it might someday be relevant, but isn't relevant now. So given all that, how should we be responding? I mean, we can all say, well, we just have to do our work and we have to do our science. But I mean, what's the some pe- for some people, it's a decision about way, whether to stay in this field or not, right? They get this PhD, do they want to continue down the path that you and I have taken? Or do they recognize that uh, that's not so constructive anymore. I mean, it does not doesn't hurt anything. You know, there's worse things you could do, but it's not. Or should they be, you know, becoming activists, or should they, you know, what? Well, I know there's no answer to this. We can't tell people how to live their lives. We don't even know how to live our own lives. But I mean, what's what advice would you give to somebody who's struggling with this and has some decision in front of them about how to spend their time and their efforts and their
2: expertise? Take two and hit the right. <laughs> <laughs> um
1: that's a baseball baseball yeah. metaphor for bas you know. goes <laughs> <laughs> from th- those
2: who, who are not familiar yeah yeah it's, it's it took common. me a second actually <laughs> yeah it takes, takes a you know it's, it's bit of a nice. no I mean you can't you every every individual has to make their own decisions, so uh you can do the science we do that people like Adam and I have done because you find it interesting fun exciting uh and uh and it still is useful okay it may not be uh it's not the solution to all the world's problems necessarily but you can at least feel your uh if you wish that in addition to it being something you like doing it is useful okay and it is that's, that's real yeah okay you can i also, believe it too yeah okay <laughs> And, you know, like what Adam is doing on extreme events is, is useful. It's, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't force political action, but at least it, it helps in some ways, A, to solve a problem, and B, perhaps to make a certain community who are in some way concerned with insurance more likely to be a political force on the right side. Yeah, Well, we'll put a, when this comes out, we'll put the address where to send checks. Yeah. (laughs) Support our research. Support our research. (laughs) Because nobody else is. (laughs) Well, some people are. Some people are. But anyway, you know, so that's one thing. The second thing is, okay, if you're the kind of person who says you don't know, and look, you're, you know, you're, you're 20 odd years old, maybe you don't know much of anything. I mean, I certainly didn't at that age. Uh, you could also say, okay, I have this science background. I could use this, if I wish now, and get into the policy sphere and, you know, use my uh, credential that way. You know, there is the um, idea of a Green New Deal. Um,
1: yeah, that's amazing. I mean, the when that came out, uh, I was just stunned by how immediately this issue was at the top of the news for a couple of weeks, it seemed like just by, I mean, partly it's the historical moment, but also it's just by saying it differently and framing it in a way that it is connected to all the other social issues that are important on the left. And I just found that an amazing, uh, Ocasio Cortez is. I'm, I'm an admirer of her for life. There's yeah. nothing she can do wrong, as far as I'm concerned. doesn't, matter, you know. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen with it. I don't know what the, you know, we don't yeah. know what the policies really are. We don't know if there, anything can pass. But as a as a political statement, I found that just a, an astounding uh, yeah. achievement. But another related question then is: we can talk about individual people's decisions, or young people's decisions, or or old people's decisions. But I mean, I guess another question is: is there a way in which, not just because of climate, but because of other Issues where science uh, has its important societal impact that just accelerates every day, and the you know what we do. I mean, we now speaking of all science and technology, just seems more more and more relevant, and more and more political issues depend on some kind of technical um, or scientific or engineering content that's hard for the public to understand, hard for anybody to understand, sometimes even the experts. So, is there a way in which uh, are there ways in which the institutions and practices of science should change to recognize this in other words, apart from people's individual decisions, you know should we evaluate people differently should should somebody making a prediction you know, mm-hmm. should that be something that uh, helps them get tenure instead of making it harder you know, should it, uh, right should, yeah. should we be teaching people how to communicate more than we, we basically still don't I mean, you teach people how to write scientific papers, that's about it you know, should we do uh, you see what I'm getting at?
2: Yeah, I do. And one of the things I learned from my uh, prediction experience where we made the prediction and it still took the next prediction before people adopted it is it's, you know, it, it's hard to move a system, especially one as sluggish as academia. So um, you have to pick your fights carefully. So I would say, what are the low-hanging fruit there? I think you could make a good case for teaching people to communicate better verbally, uh, orally, you know, uh, both... In order to talk to the press, to talk to Congress, and those are good things. But even uh, they're going to be teachers standing in front of a class, so they could do that better. Lord knows, I could. Yeah, I mean, uh, too better than Thanks. you know. So, <laughs> you know, and there are people who are naturals, and there are people who like us who are not. You know. Yeah, anything.
1: I mean, maybe we should say here, since we translate science, maybe we should explain for people who don't know that. I mean, at research universities like Columbia University. MIT, whatever—all these top research universities that have so much prestige in the world—the professors that are treated with the greatest respect have actually never been taught how to teach uh, by anyone. We all learn it just by getting thrown in the in the pool, and some right. of us learn how to do it well, and some of us never do. And I consider myself to be at most uh, somewhere in between those <laughs> extremes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's uh, maybe people don't know that. I mean,
2: that's right. I mean, we're 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 actually evaluated. Uh, Primarily, as researchers there's a movement out to put more weight on teaching, but you know in any case, so that's something that should be done uh, and uh, teaching people how to teach is related to teaching them how to communicate um, you know to a wider public, especially you know if one of us is teaching um, an undergraduate course that's not for majors, let's say yeah. which you know, I used to think it would be something I'd hate to have to do, but now I think would be something uh, in this day of, of, of global warming, I think it would be extremely valuable to do, and I would feel, I don't teach anymore, I'm retired, but, you know, I would feel very positive about that in a way that I wouldn't have 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's, it, again, it's because it's getting a message out that needs to be gotten out, too a group of people, this being a relatively elite university, who will go on and have influence in the world. Um, So I think that part's good. Looks good, from where I sit. Good. So is there anything else? Do we get it? That's it. I mean, I think we got it, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, good luck. Okay. (laughs) Thanks, Mark.
1: Okay, very appropriate to end on a note of getting the message out, as Mark says. Hopefully we're doing a little bit of that on this podcast, and I hope you appreciated getting the chance to hear the voice of the great climate scientist, Mark Kane. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production is by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor and post-producer is Dana Hamm, and our audio engineer is Chrissy Lassiter. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel, this is Deep Convection.